Hello. I couldn't help but wonder. I couldn't help but wonder. I couldn't help but wonder. Who is this? Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the air. You don't seem like a Miranda. What do I seem like? A Rambo. <laughs> Who are you? I am Rambo. Who is this? I am Rock. Did you change your name at school to Rock? And welcome to And Just Like Crap. No, 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 no. And Just Like Crap. And, 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 just, 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 just like crap. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes I feel like saying, Lord, I just don't care. But you've got the love I need to see me through. From the instant of its first release to history's current moment, the ninth serve of And Just Like That is an episode recognised globally by leading Bradshaw scholars as the second last one. Rock, hello. Hello. We do know that number nine, a.k.a. no strings attached, is the one that comes before the last one. I am aware that nine comes before ten, yes. We are also aware that it is praised for being 34 minutes in length. These are verifiable facts checked by me and you, Rock, and now our new friend Corinne, a human lady who is new but already very dear to us. Can I tell you about Corinne? You can, please. I'd love to hear about her. Okay, well, she, um, and excuse my lingo, Corinne was recently slid into my DMs by a brutal force of Sex and the City-related trauma. And she came to praise our podcast and Just Like Crap as a therapeutic tool. A little preview, Rocky. Ladies, writes Corinne to, you know, primarily you, I feel seen. More of that later. It's very moving. We do not ever feel seen, a point that you make often rock by the ladies of sex and the city. We do not recognise ourselves in them, but, oh, do we love to see those fucking bits out and about and in the first scene, I believe, balls deep in a sizable French bruncheon. Can I just tell you an actual factual non-fake fact? Please. The carbohydrate mountain that we see in scene one Mm was made and was filmed at NoHo's much-loved Lafayette, a famously chic hub for, I am reliably informed, sweets, treats and rustic meats. Got great reviews, needed more now than ever before, north of Houston, and don't say, Rock, I don't bring you the deets on eats. I am... Noting it in my cool things in New York notepad. Mm. I bring to my peeps the latest in things that I read on the internet and uh, this might be useful to you. Listening now as a person, very impatient to drop a hundo on a tepid plate of cassoulet in a boite that is probably no longer hot since Charlotte fouled the place with her game of competitive menopause. <laughs> what the F? 
<laughs> Smug Charlotte. I mean, boasting about one's reproductive performance is uncouth. Look, I was thinking about this episode and Charlotte in particular because although this episode isn't the best by far, yeah, yeah, I believe Kristen Davis is her best that she is in the season. Yeah, she's it. she's she's back to full funny. Yeah, she she is she's got good material to work with and she's doing it very well. But I was thinking why are they friends with Charlotte and why is Charlotte friends with them? Particularly for say like Miranda and Charlotte, they don't seem to have anything in common. Mm. Well, Rock, may I advise you with uh, paraphrased recourse to a philosopher I don't like very much, Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. When you stare at the abyss for long enough, the abyss stares back. Mm. What I'm saying is that you can ask this question of any bond in Sex and the City very true. and you end up in a Sartrean hell of non-existence. Why the fuck would anyone be friends with Carrie? Mm. I mean, okay, mm. I would probably be friends with Samantha. You know, you'd get her off cuts. Mm. But as you may have noticed, she's not in this series. She is very much not. <laughs> I, I think I could even find things to relate to with Charlotte, perhaps. I just there's, I was just thinking about particularly this season has shown a huge disconnect to me with their friendship. Yeah. And maybe that's intentional. What I always somewhat subconsciously supposed about Charlotte's appeal is that she is capable. Mm. It's good to have a friend who can, like, cook shit and organise parties. Um, but we, uh, we, as we have said a lot with these women, you know, they're, they're some, there is a somewhat superficial closeness. Yeah. They are both cartoonish and also kind of representative versions of a certain kind of well-to-do, mm. uh, fashionable, in-the-know, uh, coastal elite. Like, mm. they are just, like, shallow people. Yeah. We've discussed this before. I mean, there's this constant sort of propaganda promulgated uh, chiefly by Michael Patrick King uh, that this is a show about female friendship and what women do together and it's like not. No, <laughs> absolutely not. I do think like like I think that the Carrie Miranda bond is very like the strongest. She's all, you know, she's the one she usually calls first. She's like, yeah, you know, and that was in, in the past season as well. I think her Samantha bond was very strong in a different way as well. Yeah. But, yeah, in this season, like, the Carrie Miranda bond is still, I think, stronger. It was just, yeah, Charlotte is just more and more, you know, an anomaly who needs friends like Lisa Todd Wexley. Yeah. As we shamefacedly concede a hundred times a podcast, there are some very moving moments in <laughs> the Sex in the City universe. Regrettably, one of them does occur in the cinematic abuse that was the fucking movie, the first one, you know, they have a tiff, Carrie and Miranda, whose bond you correctly identify as the one that is the strongest and perhaps uh, the most sympathetic. And Carrie blames Miranda for ruining her marriage, blah, 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 and they don't talk for ages. And then I, there's a scene where she calls her up, I think this is in the movie, and says, let's meet near the thing where we did that 
what's at that time or something. So there is a frequently suggested and sustained intimacy, mm. but I also think they kind of hate each other and that's realistic. Oh, yeah, they're like they're frenemies for sure in lots of ways. I mean, women are fucked. Mm. You know, they kind of have earned their oppression. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, sure. But Davis is actually pretty good in this underwritten episode and does shallow bitch really well and, you know, Carrie's relatively inoffensive, sort of looking forward but not looking forward to the pact of a non-date she made with the quiet, handsome, I believe it is Peter, and Mm -hmm. I believe he has earned the rock verification of moderately high to high fuckability, am I right? Absolutely. You are the primary whore of this podcast and it's a great... I dispute that. <laughs> and it's a great... Well, you're the chief whore. You're whore, <laughs> okay, you're sure. whore, whore secretary of the commune. Sure. Either way, you are the person officially empowered to verify fuckability. Mm. Peter, whose name we need not remember, and I don't even know if it is Peter, like he seems destined for like narrative oblivion. Yeah. Like he, he's not coming back, is he? No. Which is a shame. She'll toy with him for a couple of dates and then we won't see him next season. Yeah, we got to get a bit of carry-on man cruelty happening. I miss that. Mm. I sort of enjoyed watching her torture Aiden. Well, she's torturing Peter. She's starting to torture Peter as well. And, like, it makes sense more now than it used to in that, you know, her emotions are all over the place and her husband's just died and she doesn't know if she's ready and and all of that. So it it makes sense to kind of keep pushing him and pulling him back, but there's only so much a dude can take or a woman can take of that. So Carrie is, I think, a little bit excited about this non-date, but she's alerted to the full head of hair on top of the school teacher widow, widower rather, you know, the guy with whom she very memorably co-vomited. Like that was a great scene, Mm, wasn't it? Brilliant. It was brilliant. The full head of hair is mentioned several times by Charlotte, ah. who is espoused to a gent of conspicuous baldness. Mm. And I don't like that. No, it's not nice. But I think we're supposed to think it's not nice. Mm. I mean, it's no different to how they talk about anyone else. I know, but here's Harry. Mm, I agree, but it's still no different to how they talk about anyone else. Yeah, uh, but he got down on his knee in a synagogue and abased himself for this turd. I mean, Harry deserves better. And I'm going to say also, Harry is sexy bald. Harry's still getting blowjobs. I think he's doing fine. Okay. All right. I shan't expend any more time in worry. There is much to say, including, well, fuck Charlotte for that. Uh, Really fuck everyone, but especially fuck Miranda Hobbs, who is such a whiny lib femme. The sudden onset political naivety where she suddenly heard of women's shelters and helping people. Like, that's fucking weird at 55, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, she's she's transforming. I think with Miranda, she's going through the biggest transformation in a way of all the women, even though, you know, Carrie's husband's died. It's very different. Like, Miranda's entire life, sexuality, personality, mm. everything is changing. And it's a, it's a lot. I've got to say, I'm not buying that her late onset lesbianism or queerness or whatever 
is a great liberation. It would be interesting to see if they do in future seasons where this goes, if if Che and her aren't together anymore, where that goes. Perhaps Che's unique brand of unfunny humour is their central asset for Miranda. Who can say? I don't know. I think she, I think she's just got a chemical attraction. It's like any. It's like what we've talked about before. Like what does Carrie see in Big? What does yeah. you know? We see. We know what Charlotte sees in Harry because Harry rules. But yeah, Sex in the City. It doesn't give us much to go. Oh, I would definitely yeah, date yeah. that person too. Sure. And to use a, a real life example, like the overwhelming desire you feel for me mm. physically, mm. has at times impeded our friendship. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about all the letters. Uh, no, Paul. I mean, look, people want me. Mm. You are Australia's Che Diaz. Yeah. According to Archer's, the Australian Centre for Sexual Health Research, in data that I'm afraid is a few years old but is more or less stable, I mean, these surveys are very difficult because you're extracting intensely personal information from people and what they do with their bits. But a larger portion of ladies do other ladies than than men do other men, like just, you know, on occasion. Not surprised, but interesting. We need distractions when we don't have any needlepoint to do. <laughs> um, when our, all our pink pens have run out. I have been remiss and I have not asked you in some weeks, Rock, who else in the series, which is nearly over for us in this project, who else rates well and who rates most poorly? Fuckable, I think that number one without question is Seema. Yes. Without question. Difficult to dispute. Extremely hot and extremely fun. And she would be, I imagine, an excellent shag. Counterpoint. Mm. Exhausting. Also that. I'm not sure I'd mm. want to date her, but I definitely want to fuck her. Certainly. That is not in dispute. It's consensus opinion. Yeah. Number two, Andre. Oh, my God. Naya's husband. Naya can also be there, also very fuckable. Yeah, thruple. One or both of them, extremely fuckable. Mm. And for a third, I'm going to go Harry. Yeah, I'm with you. Does he have what you uh, described in one of our classic episodes? Does he have the appeal that you identify in Michael Douglas to wit that of a pervy? No, Harry, God no. I think Harry would be someone who's very fun to have sex with, but he's too nice and earnest and lovely to be... Mm. Anything like the the weird perverts I like. There would be giggling. Mm. And as we know, it is impossible not to giggle while immersed in the act of love. We have often discussed this and anyone who thinks differently can get out of my bed. Indeed. I mean, what a vulgar misuse of your bits. How can you not be disgusted to the point of hilarity? All right, so uh, the fuckability quotient will be tallied for our final episode. Mm -hmm. And of course, we'll have a recap of the spin off series planned and authored by yourself. I have been in the fucking cafe far too long. Let's move ahead. <laughs> so, Lizette, legitimate cool girl? 
Oh, God. Or- Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't get young people stuff. She's 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 trying very hard in a lot of ways, but she's also in her twenties and that hot that she can. Mm, yeah, she's Carrie. Yeah, there are some disabilities that come with pretty privilege. Yeah, she might have to go back to modelling, which is very upsetting if her jewelry designing <laughs> career doesn't take <laughs> That's off. Right. And, and I think we should all take a moment to pray for Lizette. She has got a look, like it is a cool look, but the sculpted cartoonish look of the, as it turns out, brutal love interest, uh, he's not cool. Yeah, but you don't necessarily fuck cool people when you're that cool. Really? Look at look at all the, half of the men Carrie shagged in the, in the original season or all of, like, Carrie was considered cool for, for that period. She's still considered cool and you know, you don't necessarily, like you often go for the opposite. Burger, not cool. Aiden, the polar opposite of cool. Mm, big which it, opposite which it, of cool. Which is not hot but, you know, blancmange. Mm. Big kind of retro cool-ish. No, just just rich and old. So cool emerges in this episode. Carrie is envious. Maybe she sees a shadow of her younger New York self in this glamorous designer of baubles who models when she needs extra cash. Mm. She thinks she's cool, right? Mm. And there is, I think, a little envy, which is resolved later on. But, you know, Lizette, you don't mind her. I just think she's fucking hot and she is New York cool. What about the fash? It's, it's it's what is being done now. It's it's terrible, but it's great in its terribleness. Like nothing she wears is like a good outfit, but she mm. like she can because she looks like that, and that's the that's kind of the point of her. I must say, I've really not noticed her apparel. Is it just sort of uh, like decade mismatch? pseudo thrift or like the millennial yeah, children it's, it's it's I guess I would say I, I would call it anti-fashion right you know it is it's made to look like she hasn't thought about it at all everything's might be from a thrift store but I'm sure but like as I said that she was wearing like some pretty full-on expensive boots mm. in last episode or the like a couple of episodes ago and it's very sexy she'll she'll always wear something transparent or in this scene um, where she goes up to Carrie's door to give her a piece of jewellery, she's wearing like an insanely high-cut bodysuit with, I can't remember, but like pants or a skirt that start below her hips so there's a lot of hip showing. It's always, yeah, I, would, I guess anti-fashion is how I would most describe it. I like that Carrie is more than a little spellbound by this young human creature. Mm. I certainly relate and do similarly uncool things in that effort. You're not of an age, I guess, where that happens. That absolutely happens. Yeah, where you see a person in the bloom of youth who is decorated intellectually, sartorially, and in every other way you can imagine with all the risks that you take when young. Mm. And you you want to connect. And so you do the hip youth talk. <laughs> oh, no, I am absolutely there. You know, you get down like a Christian street preacher with the you things, you yeah. know? Yeah, you're Steve Buscemi in a meme. 
Yes, yes. So you have had that experience. Absolutely. Constantly. Oh, I think really? also for me, absolutely. My 20s were a very long time ago. I guess. There's very few remnants of my, of my youth like that coming through. And I think that it happens often because particularly as a single childless woman, most of my friends are partnered and with children. And so I would say the people I spend more time with now when I do leave the house, which is rare, are quite a bit younger. Yeah. I'm just clinically immature. But something that has never emerged to my personal satisfaction in Sex and the City is that particular, I don't know, phenomenon syndrome that started with Generation X, my generation, Mm. of an extended adolescence. As you noted a couple of weeks ago, there's that hilarious episode where Carrie starts banging a bloke who lives with his mum and dad Mm. and they smoke naughty pot. KFC guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's a rare excursion for her. Mm. I guess New York City gals grow up, but, you know, this is a phenomenon kind of inevitable because people have got to stay at home with mum and dad for longer in order to survive. Exactly. And I guess we don't know enough probably for the better, about Carrie to know if she was ever not kind of an older lady, you know, because she's always had that vibe. Mm. She talks about often they talk about the last 15 years with Big and that's since, you know, chronologically since the second movie. Mm. And you would imagine that as a married and from what it sounds like settled and happy woman that she wasn't living such a coolsy life but now she's I guess like me she's been thrust into this new world where she's single again and she and as a I I think as well as a writer as a presenter like she is meeting people that are a lot younger and she's working with people that are younger and she's seeing people that are younger and Seema's in that boat as well and so I feel like maybe she's getting it back a bit yeah yeah the last 15 years were probably much less hip. Yeah. I mean, they've been thrashing the theme of older ladies lost in a sea of inclusion for most of the series. It's Mm. kind of dissipated a bit, thank fuck, Mm. what with the realisation of characters introduced to us as diverse representatives Mm. who Mm. actually became people. Mm. And with, you know, I think Seema is vital. Fucking yes. Because if if there wasn't Seema, Seema is going to clubs with her. Seema is like forcing her out of her comfort zone and is wanting to do things like that. She would be doing none of that if it was just still Miranda Charlotte and her. They needed someone to do things with Carrie that were out of Carrie's comfort zone and Mm. just active for two, you know, single childless women in their Mm. 50s. I mean, I don't know any women in their 50s going to clubs and these, you know, they are and it's amazing and they look fabulous and there's the scene with them in line trying to get into the club is excellent. Them trying to bribe a doorman into letting them in is freaking hilarious. Yeah. And walking away from trying to convince or bribe a doorman into letting them into a club. I think it's Seema that says, did I just get cancelled by a doorman? Yes, yes. And it's beautiful. The fact of 
feminine ageing and it's palpable in the club queue scene. I like it. I like that they go there. Carrie Bradshaw's ongoing realisation that she is no longer Carrie Bradshaw, Mm. it's good. I find it increasingly difficult to dislike Sarah Jessica Parker, even though she killed Samantha, Mm. for what she brings to that role. Mm, she's doing great work. She really yeah, is doing she, great, yeah. great work. And the, the her and Seema dynamic is great. They're at the line at the shelter waiting to get their paintbrushes mm. and they reference, you know, waiting in lines. Yeah. And, you know, Seema says, when did you last wait in, wait in a line? And Carrie is like, to get my vaccine, which is one of the references to COVID that have been so rare in this season happening during COVID. I guess... I'm thinking about it now. There's a lot of dichotomies in this episode and opposing forces and binaries. There's rich and can you see it in the fash? Um, I have to think about that. I def I just see. I definitely see it in like there's the you know old and young, and there's rich and lesser, and there's cool and uncool, and there's a lot of grappling with that. I guess mm. particularly for Carrie, I think that w- the way you see it. One of the best uses of fashion in this episode is what they all wear to the shelter. Mm. You've got Carrie who's there in overalls and an, and an overshirt that aren't that expensive. Like I costed their outfits. Well, I mean, it's your obligation. It is. And so what she's wearing is pretty standard but then six-inch, I think, Aquazura or Alexander Vautier platforms. I will confirm that. Oh, you must. They're, they're six inch, like they're really high. And they, the, the heel for those silver and gold platforms, it was custom made for them. And I just love that a, a heel on a shoe that is seen briefly, to say the least, in this episode was custom made for this, for this episode. Fashion is evanescent, but costume design uh, for screen uh, mm. is even more fleeting. Yeah, and Carrie, Carrie at one point in this episode is also carrying, so, you know, we've talked about the Fendi baguette, the sequin Fendi baguette yeah. that, that came back. So Fendi made her a custom baguette for this episode and they offered it apparently, but she got to choose the colour and it's a bright fuchsia it's stunning and you only see it. I don't think you even ever see the whole bag. It's, it's like, you know, it's the, it's amazing that all of this is happening in the background. But back to the shelter, you know, she- Carrie's wearing pretty good painting clothes, I would say. <laughs> and then these like six-inch skyscraper heels, which is just very her. And it's even more of a hark back, I guess, to old Carrie because there is more cheaper clothes going on. Carrie doesn't, Carrie wears vintage in her 50s, but not ragtag things that she used to wear in her 20s. You know, she used to to be a a mix. Miranda is dressed Miranda-y and it's practical and price-wise is feasible and everything. It's a shirt, t-shirt, it's pants, like she's, she's as you would. Then Charlotte, you know, Charlotte commits and is in an all-white boiler suit oh yes she's always got the perfected imaginary outfit Mm. on Mm. which is a little overdone I like that and none of them are except Carrie's shoes dressed fabulously except Lisa Todd Wexley who shows up in head-to-toe machino 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 I don't know 
safari shorts and jacket suit with matching thigh-high lace-up tan boots. And in all the pockets of her safari suit, she has a hairbrush and makeup brushes. And I just died when I saw that. I love LTW in all her incomprehensible glory. She saves the day. She gets lunch. The caterers have cancelled. Naya needs to feed 100 people. Lisa Todd Wexley and Charlotte show up in a limo to painting a shelter. <laughs> they say a van was supposed to come. I don't believe them. Oh, and the, ca- the catering van. <laughs> no, no. They say when they arrive in the limo, they like Lisa is like, oh, oh yeah, I yeah. ordered a minivan and this is what showed up. I'm like, you didn't order a minivan at all. Um, you're just having a, you're realising how bad it looks to you showing up to a yeah, to a women's shelter painting in a limo. As fun as the event production feel of the women's shelter spectacular painting mm. afternoon, mm. that's fun. But, you know, it's also a bit too disposable. I mean, I'm not quite sure if there's a unified approach in this actually quite long element of the episode at the women's shelter where conspicuous acts of charity, painting and decorating unfold. Are they having a gag or are they having it a bit both ways? I don't think they're having a gag. I think that it's just there's never any mention or reference or even parallel story arc or anything about violence against women. Although there is, jumping ahead a little, uh, there are um, intimations that Lizette's uh, current bow is not much chop, right? Yeah, th- I think that's the only kind of reference to it. But I don't think it's, it's, I don't think that, I don't know if the writers would have even, if that's what's going on consciously with him. I think it's just, that is the kind of guy you date when you're her. Yeah, but he's an aggro prick and you just think there must have been like an obvious temptation to interweave a personal story mm. of, you know, something that approximates or, mm. you know, something that suggests brutal abuse mm. and a whole lot of charity chicks going out in their best painting clothes to put an end to it. But I think I think they are having a gag with the fact that Carrie doesn't want to do it. When it's first, when Miranda first asks, she's like, no, she, you know, there's the joke of how can we say no? And then she's like, no, really, how can we say no? I'll write a check. Carrie mm. is reluctantly there, even when yep. she's there. Seema doesn't want a bar of it and just goes because Carrie might have lunch with her. I, I think they are showing in a way that a lot of people that, you know, that, that that it's token and that people do this as favors to their friends and that I don't think sex in the city in any way could do a brutal domestic violence or family violence oh, storyline. Like it would be awful. No. We don't want to see that. It would be worse than the Miranda alcoholism yeah, plotline. exactly. And it would be deeply irresponsible of them in a way because it would just be a throwaway thing. They, they would never go into it enough. And the, the alcoholism I think was irresponsible in the first place. What they more weave into the shelter is Naya and her husband end up having some very difficult conversations about he want, he desperately wants children and she doesn't. There's family stuff going on in the shelter. Lily and her period, you know, Steve and, and Carrie 
having a DM, but there, yeah, there's no reference to who the shelter is for specifically. I get that it's sort of like visually structured to advance this overarching narrative of safety Mm. and not Mm. having it. But as I think we are agreed, it is an uneven episode. We had some standout moments Mm. and thumbs up to the conspicuous compassion of ladies who paint. Mm. I, I just still on that. I think one of the one of the funny bits about this shelter to me is that when Lisa Todd Wetzley gets out of her car, and you know we know she is a noted documentarian, and she does work with the pores. You would you expect it's never said explicitly, but that's what you expect. She's going with the UN to to the feed, UN to feed dark people. Again, and- we demand the lib cuck documentary oeuvre of LTW. We want to see it. Please make it next season. Fuck yeah. It'll be worse than that shit the Obamas make. Oh, my God. It'll be, it'll be amazing. I'm excited. Um, it'll be, I guess, a documentary version of the Imagine song that celebrities put out at the beginning of COVID, which was just an amazing moment in pop culture history. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to. It sounds like a tsunami of nausea. Oh, have you not seen it? I managed to protect myself from that moment of cultural aggression. Okay, let me briefly explain. A bunch of celebrities led by Wonder Woman, Israeli lady Gal Gadot, including Kristen Wiig and Chris O'Dowd and a bunch of them. You know, at the beginning of of COVID, there was this, you know, we're all in this together. Celebrities coming out going, we're all in this together from their mansions with their staff. The class divide it was just hilarious. They, you know, just the, how out of touch these people are was amazing. Ellen saying it's like being in prison in her LA mansion with all her staff and her beautiful wife. And Gal Gadot organised for a cut of celebrities singing Imagine that they just put out into the world. Gal Gadot, former poster girl for the IDF. Yes. So they put out this song and it was trashed within three seconds everyone just going what the fuck is wrong with you people a song by a activist john lennon who is you know the worst activist the world has ever seen he lay in a five-star hotel bed as protest john made his attempts at revolution and that act of fluxus Mm. or i believe today we call it immersive theater (laughs) fuck off no no. Well, Gal Gadot has brought that back with this song and all different celebrities singing it cut together. They put it out into social media. It got panned within five seconds. Everyone's like, you rich cunts, fuck off. And one thing worth listening to is an episode of Louis Thoreau's COVID podcast, which is called Grounded, which is just him interviewing people he likes mm-hmm. or wants to interview and it's it's very good. It's not him trying to expose anything or go deep into anything. It's just having chats. There's an excellent Miriam Margulies episode and he has an episode where he talks with Chris O'Dowd, the Irish actor from Bridesmaids and the IT crowd, who did the Imagine oh, shit. And Louis just gives him absolute shit for it. And Chris O'Dowd acknowledges that it was a terrible thing to do but then says 
the words that I agree with. When Kristen Wiig asks you to do something, you do it. I certainly would. Exactly. So he's forgiven a little bit for that. But I think, you know, this shelter, this whole shelter thing is is another example of this class, you know, we'll go in and paint a shelter and, you know, they won't do anything charitable again for 10 years because they've they yeah, painted the a shelter. Yeah, the false solidarity of the rich. Yeah, just write checks. The thing that you defined as happening and was very clear to anybody with half an eye open, the we were all in this virus together, although even from the beginning, stati- statistically, uh, <laughs> there was mm. an enormous divide. I mean, poverty is mm. a risk factor for every disease and also, mm. may I add, mm. fuck the system. Uh, you may add that and I would like to second mm. that emotion. I'm so over it. Oh, oh it's just fucked. seriously, it's just like fucked. the old order is dying. Let the new one emerge. Let's eat the fucking rich Stop already. Stop blaming particularly repugnant individuals with some sort of power for their immoral speech and fucking remember, okay, this is not a good chat for two people with major depressive (laughs) disorder. The 1.7 billion people in the global south are starving. And or dying of COVID. Well, let's not forget HIV, the pandemic Mm. that never ended in sub-Saharan Africa. This is not good for our podcast stats, nor is it probably uh, advisable as our psychiatrists would affirm. Everything is fabulous. Climate Mm. change is a lie and Mm. I'm sure that the morbid old order presided over by the US hegemon that kills literal millions a year uh, and imprisons any kind of dissidents at the drop of a fucking fascinator, that will all fix itself and that's very good. Yes. Yay, democracy. And yay to And Just Like That, a program with which we have a complicated relationship. (laughs) If you do not mind, Rock, uh, let me return Mm. to um, Corinne. She offers us much solidarity as survivors of Mm. six entire seasons of Sex and the City, two instances of harsh cinematic abuse and now a very confusing iteration of Carrie in the form of and just like that. Believe it or not, the primary topic of this podcast, which is called And Just Like Crap. Now, Let me share with you more of Corinne's regards. Do you mind? Go for it. They are nominally extended to both Rock and Rambo, but more volubly to you, Rock, Uh, Mm. Rock whom she Mm -hmm. describes as her personal saviour with emotional depth and intellectual breadth unchallenged by humankind hitherto Mm -hmm. that have become invaluable as totems of feminine excellence. Rock, she writes, at least in my memory, you sustain my very life. 
something along these lines, blah, blah, rock, she's so funny and awesome, where can I buy her merchandise? She goes on about your gifts, but (laughs) I did want to, if you will indulge, just explore momentarily the question of why the fuck do we watch this thing? Um, when you say that you enjoy something like the Gilmore Girls, you describe it, you personally rock. Mm. It's an indulgence. It's like a naughty snack. Mm. You know, it's uh, comfortable and um, fleeting. It doesn't really stay with you. I don't find myself thinking about Rory's problems. I think that we have a very different relationship with Gilmore Girls because almost an entire friendship like with one specific person is built on our love of Gilmore Girls. But, I mean, just because a particular artefact brings you together does not mean that that artefact is as complex as your relationship or is it? It's not as complex as, as the relationship, but, it, it you know, you, you said it doesn't stay with you particularly. You don't think about like Rory's inner world or whatever. I think it, I think just in that specific show, I think I do more. Do you focus more on its sort of like quirky details or does it have resonance? Oh no, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't have intellectual resonance. Absolutely not. Or, or, I mean, I guess emotional resonance. No. SATC has visual intellect that is correctly celebrated by all and sundry, but uh, it is not in any way an intellectual challenge. No, absolutely not. Does not ask or usually seek to answer big questions. And when it does, it does it very badly, a.k.a. Miranda's alcoholism. But. What is it for me? And I resisted uh, the lure of this thing that I heard about for some time and came to Sex and the City uh, relatively late, around 2003, mm-hmm. and watched it in secret <laughs> <laughs> and told my uh, partner of the, the time that um, she wouldn't want to bother watching this crap, which I was just viewing for research purposes. Mm-hmm. But I'm compelled to watch and re-watch it. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, like I fucking don't like fucking chick lit or fucking contemporary fucking women's fucking fiction or empowerment or body positivity or like. Anything really. You know, sisterly activity, brunch, Hillary Clinton, all that shit can get fucked. But there is something about this ongoing trauma that Corinne feels, which has a depth. Do you agree? Sure. Can't be asked. Following that train of thought, you see, I think the thing is for years I was a television critic and, you know, if I'd tried hard enough, I could have got Rotten Tomatoes verified. Hey. But I didn't because I'm lazy and also not that good. I mean, maybe because of that, um, I seek to intellectualise pure enjoyment. But still, there's something in every episode that gets me. It's the hate watch. Like, it's the phenomenon of hate watching. It's It's, not exactly that, though, is it? You know that. I think it's partly that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I don't, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but it is, I, I, I wonder if you could say it's equal parts good and bad, or if the bad really does outweigh the good. The fashion alone 
makes me watch it. Yeah. In the original series, all the dating stuff, all the stuff with men, you know, it was Sex and the City first aired when I was, you know, it started when I was in my late teens Yeah. um, and went through my 20s and I saw a lot of, you know, me in their relationships and now it's, you know, as as Mm. it's aged, you know, there is still, you know, not for me, I, I can't relate to anyone but really Seema who is partnerless and childless, but the marriage problems that mm. these women are having and still, like, I think the the storyline in this episode about Lily's tampons and Charlotte's menopause, I think that's very relatable. It's not necessarily accurate. Yeah. But it's, you know, we don't see television or film about periods ever and I do give mm. credit to this episode. Yeah for not just talking about it but showing it. The scene of Charlotte trying to get Lily, trying to teach Lily how to insert a tampon is yeah. freaking hilarious. And credit to, I think I looked up, her name's Kathy Ang who plays Lily. She's also excellent in this episode and her and Charlotte have developed a bit of a rapport that is great. And, you know, Charlotte telling, trying to tell her in a portaloo how to get, you know, a tampon mm-hmm. string yeah, that's, that has gone that's missing. Like, good. Yeah, it's all real good and it's refreshing to see. You know, they are juxtaposing, um, I did it again, juxtaposing the menopause with Lily's experience with tampons. Like in a bad episode, I think that's the absolute standout and actually done very well. If I were a gender studies undergrad, I might say the sex and the city universe locates the feminine body as the locus of its inquiry. And I'd probably get an HD. Um, <laughs> but the bodily, the bodily stuff, I, I'm uh, with mm. you there. And for petty trifling reasons uh, as well as th- the remnants of my feminism, which is corporeal and psychoanalytic in nature, I will uh, be explaining this in my uh, worldwide tour of things Rambo half read in 1993. Um, Your TED Talk series. Yeah, yeah, thank you for not coming. So there are, you know, you can make easily and many, many people have a, a really solid rationale for the appearance of bodies or reference to bodies mm, and and the stuff with them pa- tampons uh, a used condom charlotte that miranda stepped on of her of her child they do go there and they always have yeah. the bodies you're right i mean it was one great. of the i mean the, you know the fem the the female eunuch the famous book uh from 1972 mm-hmm. uh authored by uh jermaine greer who is sadly no longer uh with us but in transphobe hell um <laughs> Yeah, she's not dead. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> just just going to put it out yeah. there. Rape's not, not real. Women who aren't, oh women aren't real. I mean, fucking hell. Oh, God. So, Please so, stop sorry, talking, Jemangria. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the most memorable parts and resonant parts uh, and reported fragments of that book is, you know, Taste Your Own Menstrual Blood. Mm. And I imagine in the late 1960s, early 1970s, where one's parts or one's vagina was a, a void of pure evil, mm. I imagine that that, you know, liberation from 
it being a mysterious thing to I think you kind of got to look after um, was quite something, mm. you know, for similar reasons, this dramedy with very high production values that also said can't and talked about anal also resonated because bodies are things that exist in the real mm. material world which we do tend to ignore, I think. Especially female ones. Yeah. I mean, there's a long history of male bodies being mangled and demonised and what have you, but the point I'm making is, fuck me, vaginas can be a nuisance. Mm. <laughs> like, things do get stuck up there. Mm. And, you know, Sex in the City's gone there before with Carrie's diaphragm Often. and Samantha having to go in and get it. One thing I just then thought about, though, is that so Lily and Rock are about the same age. Uh, yes, yes, we've discussed this amply. They've got to be around the same age. Yeah. Rock has a vagina. They're non-binary, but they have a vagina. And there is no, Rock's not included in this storyline at all. Perhaps they're waiting until next season to broach the idea of pausing puberty via medications or something. So You're, I'm just saying it's just not addressed. Yes. And not that they have to, but I think it, it probably is a bit in the too hard basket. Um, and it's only interesting to me in that they are the same age. Like most people have their period Why by 15. Why do they have you in the fucking writer's room? I mean, <laughs> it becomes evident every time we do this fucking uh, catastrophe. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But maybe they, maybe they have, like, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that they, do, they don't know this or haven't thought about this. I think that it's probably just that's a bit much to go down. We're not going to go down hormones. We're not going to yeah. go down all of that. Um, there's no implication that Rock is on hormones. Rock's just saying yeah, that yeah. Rock's non-binary. So, you know, I don't know enough non-binary people or about non-binary people to say that they don't take hormone blockers or anything. But yeah. They would be they would be experiencing exactly what Lily's experiencing. Yeah, but they would up their uh, fucking woke quotient with a little bit of like mm. non-binary menstruation is all I'm mm. saying. But good point, salient mm. point, trenchant conversation here on and just like crap. Tell your friends to like and subscribe to things. My name is Rambo and I'm going off the rails. Fortunately, young Rock is here to tell me more about fashion. Fashion in this episode, it's, it's, there's less outfits just because they spend such an, a significant amount of time on the shelter. Mm. But there are some absolute standouts. LTW's oh, safari, Machino Safari outfit, I just, I will never get over that. That is amazing. Carrie... Brings it several times. So when they're in the club scene, mm. and it's funny because I think one of the, the contrast things is like clubbing to me when I was younger was sneakers and like it wasn't heels and tight dresses. It's a very different, you know, it's a very different scene. Oh, I, I was certainly. I mean, clubbing for me was wearing, you know, Happy Mondays flares and old school hoodies. I mean, yeah, frock up for a club, fuck off. Yeah, there was no heels. It was like it was raves and drum and bass clubs for me. So it's just so funny to, to see two women in their 50s dressed to the nines to go into a club, which they were at first. I was like, oh, maybe they're going into more of a like New York's kind of huge 
bars that are very loud and like clubs, but not exactly clubbing. But at the very end, when Carrie's last words, when they do go into one of these clubs is, and just like that, I was ready for a dance. So it is mm. a clubbing experience. Yeah. But Carrie's outfit, so Carrie in the in the clubbing scene, Seema's in a blue sequined, very new use of colour for Seema. Yeah. We haven't really seen her in colour. Seema is approaching the dandyism that Carrie's yes. inclined to. Yes, and so she's wearing this beautiful blue sequin dress, couldn't find anywhere who it's by, but she looked great. Carrie's outfit is this white, very tight, satin dress. It's almost reminiscent of the amazing blue Norma Kamali dress that she wore the last episode or a couple of episodes oh my back when gosh. she just looked ridiculous. I've just had a breakthrough moment because I know exactly the frock you're talking about. I have grown. You have grown. Well, the silhouette is very similar. She's wearing a very tight asymmetric dress with a blazer over it. Um, which which she was in that in that episode as well. Very quick thematic fashion cue. Do Seema and Carrie continue to mutually assure their fashion resurrection? No. Are they so? They because that happened earlier on. You noted. Yeah, in this episode, there's not much of that with anyone really. Yeah, the Carrie's outfit is just very interesting. This she looks phenomenal. Points of interest from it. The dress is a vintage Chongsam, the traditional Chinese high-necked dresses. Do you know what I'm talking about? Of course yeah. I do. So they altered, a, they found that in a vintage warehouse sale. It's understood as an intrinsically seductive form of dress, mm. if not well, the most. Uh, yes, and you would never think that that's what it was from looking at it because they've altered it. And it's worn much tighter, I think, than they are traditionally worn. And the only reason she's wearing a blazer, the blazer wasn't planned, she was cold. And the blazer is something that they had on hand from one of the movies and it just works. And she's wearing, for the only time in this season, very long earrings. She just looks, she looks fabulous. I just, I'm just like, that's what you wear to a club? Because... I was a dirty club rat and not a fancy club lady. Mm. Yeah, it was all gritty, yucky and gazelles for you, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Uh, Royals, Royals sneakers, which were a phenomenon when I was in, I think, like year 12. Oh, yes, I had a pair of Royals. They were Without very, the laces. very ugly. They're Velcro, very ugly things. They were very ugly and my mother despised me wearing them with, like, a dress. But, yeah, it was like I was wearing, like, rave clothes because we used to we'd we'd go to either raves or drum and bass clubs there was no fancy there was no like down on the wharf sydney clubbing for me you ever do a bush doof fuck me loved a bush doof oh god those things i know seriously i just used to i was in a long-term relationship with um a a person who dj'd at bush doof (laughs) and i found myself yelling at conspiracy theory speakers in Mm. octagonal tents about the bullshit that they were saying. And, you know, the fun thing is, though, about a Bushdorf, if you find the couple who are on just the right amount of acid Mm. that they spend like two days colour-coding garbage, Mm. that makes it all okay. Oh, 
When I stopped taking drugs. When was that? I had to stop going to work. Well, I stopped taking club-type drugs. I don't know. My, I'm, my, my, my thoughts about this on ages is quite skewed, but I, I was in my early 20s when I stopped taking, say, hallucinogenics and MDMA. Doof is just an offence without MDMA. Yes, and I tried once and it was a hellish experience that I never wished to live again. I wish they wouldn't call it Molly. It deserves a much nicer name. What a fucking great drug. Yeah, it's a beautiful drug. Oh, my God. Oh, I'd love some Eki. But, yeah, when, when, it, when you stop taking drugs and try to go to a bush dog, it's like when you're the sober one when everyone's been drinking for a few hours and something ticks over and everyone is insufferable and you realise what drunk people are like. Oh, my God. Have you ever been abstinent in a room full of people with a schnoz full of uh, marching powder? I have. Also insufferable. Oh, my fuck. Could somebody else talk about the screenplay they wrote in year 11? That would be fascinating. Thank you. Yes. I think the, the moral of this is don't be around drunk people or people taking drugs unless you are doing the same. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I, I find being around drunk people when I'm not drinking, which is most of the time now, quite hilarious until there's always a tick up. It's, it's like 11 p.m. to midnight. There's a moment where it goes from, haha, these people are amusing me to, oh, God, they keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again and I want to die. No, I mean, grog, you know, the fucking calories. Why bother? Oh, exactly. What a fascinating insight, I would say a feminist insight, into pharmaceutical experimentation, Mm. entirely relevant to our premium podcast. And thank you to our sponsors in the fringe pharmaceutical industry. Oh, fuck, that would be good, wouldn't it? Mm. Imagine having Mm. like a a decent drug dealer as your sponsor. How good would that be? I just, as soon as... And they make MDMA without any come down or side effects, I will not stop taking it. I do think that there are widely documented ill effects of overuse of this drug. And mm. uh, if one takes too much, one is drained of serotonin and mm. ends up inevitably in the nut house, which is not as bad as you might think. <laughs> uh, just like and just like that one outfit I would like to draw attention to please is Naya's velvet floral tracksuit that she is wearing at the shelter painting it is very bright it is very beautiful she's wearing the pants and then she's wearing the zip-up tracksuit top open over like a pink top she looks fabulous that particular velvet floral tracksuit on a woman who is painting a shelter <laughs> starts at $1,000. Yeah. Naya Wallace, though, actor Karen Pittman, mm. she could make like a shit-covered Hessian sack work, though. I mean, she's a glory. It's not that she's not waking at work. It's that she's wearing a $1,000 tracksuit to paint a women's shelter. Mm. I mean, often her beauty exceeds the um, exquisiteness of her outfits. Mm. which is unusual on and just like that slash sex in the city. Uh, yeah, it, it just amused me because even like even Carrie except the shoes was in overalls. Yeah. Um, and the shoes, I will confirm, I have checked my notes, are Aquazura and they would be a good $1,500. That's kind of necessarily it for the fashion except that I found a good quote about the fashion in this and about 
the difference between the original series and and just like that and the and the outfits and it's that in the original series there was a certain relatability to Carrie's outfits to people who can't necessarily afford the shoes that she had because she did wear items that definitely came from cheaper places and a woman uh, that I found there was a quote that said the the scrappiness of the original show has been replaced by extreme elegance and it is very true in every character everything about the apparel in the show is eclipsed by the fact of the original sex in the city it mm. it is like intrinsically self-referential and mm. was I don't know if it still is I'd have to confirm with um my esteemed colleague Rog influential oh absolutely I don't know I don't think it's particularly I don't think and just like crap is influential fashion wise because it's unattainable it's entirely unattainable yeah but I mean the unattainable is the most influential thing I un- mean maybe it's un- in- under the production mode of capitalism that's you know ideology Yes, but maybe it's unattainable. Maybe it's attainable for women or more repeatable or mimicable for women of that age group. But I don't see it having influence yeah. on a younger audience because it's, 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 even though unattainable and aspirational dressing sets the tone, it's so unattainable mm. in this yeah. that it's just, you, you just can't even think about it. Indeed. So the author of the quote, I concede, uh, makes an irrefutable case. Sex and the city was scrappy, sometimes mm. even genuinely approaching thrift store from what I have read of mm. Patricia Field. Is it Field or Fields? I think it's, oh, actually, I don't know. All sorts of things she located in all sorts of bargain bins. Mm. And that sort of, that vintage is, well, it's almost an American tradition now, isn't it? Mm. And Lizette, Lizette, Lizette's character has the sum of the scrappiness yeah. of Carrie, but I think that I would argue that she, Lizette probably even makes more than Carrie did or is from more money than Carrie was. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we're now in a realm of couture and other garments mm. exquisitely made available only to the costume designers. Yeah, things being custom made, things being sourced from temperature-controlled warehouses in Milan. Yes, yes, um, and delivered by armed guard. Mm. Oscar Wilde would approve of the depth of this shallow beauty. It's beautiful things Absolutely. for... Their very own sake. Um, and one one amazing, I will, the last thing I'll say probably on fashion is that Andre's outfit, if you remember at the shelter, he's wearing overalls and like, a, he always has a cool hat. He's wearing like a blue little cap. He is one of on those of very rare human males or humans who can get away with a jaunty chapeau. He's just, I think that to me, his his fashion is so referential of 90s hip hop and there was a lot of this stuff in it. There was a lot of overalls. There was a lot of hats on men back then. I, like to me, he's, he's bringing like money 90s hip hop mm. and they're vintage upcycled overalls he's wearing mm. and like a, a custom made hat by an amazing um, an amazing milliner called Rodney Patterson who has a brand called Essential and it's go back and look at the hat because it's hilarious. Like I love it 
so much. It's a bright blue cap. Hey, I don't really want to talk about the Steve stuff. It's just awful. Nah. I I, I think that he's very good in this. Oh, yeah, he's good. He's for good. the first time this season or at least for the first time for an extended time. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. He's not a bumbling fool. Yeah. The only, you know, I think the whole we need to talk about, we haven't really discussed the whole story arcs for both Carrie and Steve on wedding rings. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I don't even want to think about Steve making a vow that he would never unmake his vow and remove his ring is so sad. It's so sad and I I thought about it. I was thinking about Steve and Miranda with all of this and, you know, I'll never take it off because his love for her is undying and she's horrible to him and it's like, which is like entirely realistic, you know. She deserves extrajudicial assassination. Yeah, and I guess Miranda in some ways is like Steve's Mr. Big in that what either of them get out of that relationship is unclear. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess it's it's different, but Miranda treated Steve mean and kept him keen. And that is what Mr. Big did to Carrie. I don't think their later relationship, Carrie and Big's later relationship necessarily, but it's just that, you know, we've talked about this before. It's that infatuation. Yeah. I mean, we all love a stuffed muff, but seriously, why go around wrecking Steve's life, you bitch? I know. I don't like you, Veranda Hobbs. Justice for Steve. Uh, I stand with fucking Steve mm-hmm. and his ring. So, sorry, the ring. So, the ring, uh, it's actually a fairly touching moment for a sap such as I mm. where Steve, like, actually with with pride says that he will never remove the ring. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's super interesting and I, I like that Carrie brings up quite early in the episode, like, should I not be wearing my wedding ring? Mm. And I would argue that not having been in this position but from what I've seen, wearing your wedding ring, you know, it's only maybe a year since Big died. People wear them for years. Like it's not, some people do never stop wearing them. And I like that when she considers taking it off, she ends up putting Big's ring on, which I think is is quite lovely. Yeah. Then lo- almost losing it. I mean, don't wear it to paint yeah. a shelter. It's too big for you. Put it on your necklace. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I am not married, nor am I very good at jewellery. But the, the little I know about grief, it does assume a very close attachment to symbols, whether they're mm. universally recognised or just appointed by you. So I mm. imagine that the decision of one widowed to mm. take off or put on a wedding ring to either honour or recover from the loss I, I think it might be different all round, you know. Mm. I think an and attachment to objects and not just symbols as well and rings are particular. I mean, we've t- I've talked before on this podcast about how I, you know, wore my mum's engagement ring for a very long time after my mum died and then when it was, we believe, stolen, I took time off work. I was so distraught. Yeah. There's another instance close to my grandmother's end of life. She gave me two, like she literally like took them off in bed and gave them to me and it was her ring and what I didn't realise she wore was my grandfather's wedding ring as well 
my sister and I thought it was somewhat amusing because we we never saw any indication that my grandparents particularly liked each other. And then she gave me these two rings and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, my grandfather died when I was 14. I don't really have insight into their relationship because I wasn't particularly thinking about or aware of it. Then again, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors, exactly. as the poet doth say. Exactly. Whether 14 or 40. You wouldn't mm. have known shit. No, exactly. Relationships, who even understands them? Who does? We were discussing uh, at my insistence uh, the question of why do I like sex in the city so much when it's really not my kind of thing? Part of the appeal of sex in the city uh, is explained by it's just been around for so fucking long that perhaps this resonance that I believe that I feel at times is just the sort of thing that happens when you hang out with fictional or real identities for a period of time. Like mm. you and I now, we, we, we've had our 10-year anniversary, haven't we? Mm. It's like, I, it's like I would imagine so. you know, why bother breaking up at this point? <laughs> we've survived a podcast we have survived a podcast. Of nearly 10 whole entire episodes. I know, it's amazing. On the topic of a bunch of turds in very nice clothes mm. doing things that are largely confusing to most mm. people, including us, perhaps especially us, we can survive anything. Bring it. Including this monkey virus you're telling me about. Monkeypox. I know nothing about it, so I can't contribute. All I know is that there are two cases here. But what I would actually like to speak about that I think we should speak about is just the scene of Charlotte's Shabbat dinner that Anthony and his new oh my gosh, I love this. show up at. And, the Holocaust know, the, the, denier. The hot Holocaust denier. Charlotte, you know, Lily decides it's a frazzled, you know, it's a, it's a common trope. It's a frazzled dinner party, basically. And, you know, Lily decides then and there that Charlotte has to teach her to put in a tampon at that moment, which leads to the hilarious montage of Charlotte trying to show Lily different ways of getting it up there. Mm. It's great. They're both great in it. Kathy Yang, you're amazing. Yeah, she's, a, she's, she's good. She's really yeah, good. Yeah, she is. She's also 26. Oh, fuck oh. off. <laughs> oh, fuck off. Kathy Yang, you're so doing convincingly amazing. fifteen, yeah, asshole. But yeah, there's just the beautiful line. They're all sitting at the table, and and Anthony has brought this new beau, um, who looks like you know Fabio, basically. Well, just like or some, uh, like a, a, a eugenics experiment. He's very Aryan, yes. And Charlotte is go is going to help Lily with her situation, and says to Harry. Can you take the hulla out or or whatever in ten minutes? Hulla being for those uninitiated, a Jewish traditional bread that we eat every Friday night. It's delicious. It's basically cake. It has more sugar mm. in it mm. than most cakes. I love it. Your faith is glorious. Mm. We I had it last night. It was great. A lot of baked goods. Carbs at night only on Fridays. But yes, Charlotte says to Harry, "Get the hulla out of the whatever," and the Nazi date of Anthony says to Anthony, oh, is this a Jewish thing? And Anthony says yes. And then he says, 
you know the Holocaust never happened. <laughs> and Anthony does not miss a beat and just says, get out! Yeah, you know, that's his hard limit. Like <laughs> he'll really go rough with the trade. Yeah. But Nazis? Well, denying the Holocaust at a Jewish house yeah. is, is, is uh, who knows if he would have done it not at a Jewish house, yeah. but he's out. Yeah. Um, and that just to close off that scene at dinner, you know, there's this just a beautiful moment where Harry says, I'm sorry, I forgot the holler. Charlotte says, I'm sorry that I took so long. And Anthony says, I'm sorry I brought Justin, which was just lovely, mm-hmm. um, as is everything Anthony does in this season. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe, like, much more sympathetic, has retained his wit, perhaps fueled by the loss I imagine he feels of his colleague. Yes, and used sparingly and just enough, I think. Bit more ado, man. Oh, a bit more ado, but I think like I think that when he's there, I love it and they give him such great material. The only other thing from this episode that I think we must get to before we leave people in peace to resume their lives is the Miranda Che situation Ugh. of Che dominating that relationship and setting all the rules, which which upsets me a little bit. Yeah. You were speaking earlier of dichotomies um, Mm. and their role in uh, this episode. There's one in particular that I personally wrestle with, which is Che Diaz, the reasonably well-written non-binary figure that represents a population group hitherto invisible in popular media, Mm. and Che the pothead fuck they who can't tell jokes. Mm. Very difficult binary there for me personally. I'm torn. Yeah, I think it's it's hard. I, I, I'm like you. I go back and forth with Che. Um, I definitely don't like that they literally do get to call all the shots yeah. and Miranda is giving all her power to Che and it's not, to me, not necessarily the enlightened relationship that she thinks it is. But... I'm going to suggest that perhaps Miranda is getting off on that a little, not having previously assumed that role in a sexual relationship. Um, yeah, I, like I don't know if it's intentional of the writers or, or, or whatever. I just And I didn't necessarily pick it up the first time I watched this, but obviously I'm watching the season again with a more critical eye. Mm. It is my hope that the shit writing around their union is not intentional. Yeah. Because it just like the sum of it's not working for me. I don't yeah, I don't know. The, 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 it's it's not a great tale so far to me. I mean, no one's that muff blind, are they? Well, no, I think they are. Like I think I, I think I've been that person in a in a heteronormative relationship. People are that infatuated with people that they let themselves be completely Subservient. Some people want to be completely subservient. Yeah. Also, a lot of it is just, you know, commit to love, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you you know, particularly my quite small generation of idiots, there was this ongoing personal development quasi-feminist story of you're choosing the wrong men and, you know, you're worth more and, you know, what Mm. these, um, you know, accounts uh, that that apportion guilt to, you know, everyone don't really take into consideration is the very high probability of a human person 
feeling a deep drive to find a love object, and then the other truism that I believe you would not dispute, most people are fucking cunts. Also true. I say this with a great love of my human creature. Yes. And I know that the cuntiness is um, on accident. Yes. But to your point, is anyone that muff blind? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been like that. We've all, yeah, like absolutely. We haven't all been like that because some people have just been the alpha and ruled. And, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily like those dynamics can develop in a relationship without them being there at first for different reasons that the person's, you know. But I just note, particularly in the last couple of episodes, which with the whole Miranda Chase story arc, that Miranda's losing her entire self in this. She's being told what to do, how to do it, and Che gets to call literally all the shots. And it's also um, what with all the polyamory challenge, the heteronormative standard of monogamy, be free and uh, defy all boundaries. It's all really boring. Yeah, there's also that. Now, what gems do you retain in your formidable mind that must be shared with our adoring public, a.k.a. Corinne? Seema in the scene where, you know, she's at the shelter and she's like, I'm not fucking painting a thing, I'll write a check. And Carrie has said, I've been told I'm not allowed to just be that white lady who writes checks. And Seema quite brilliantly says, it's very hard to be white these days. Mm. And Seema goes off and sits smoking outside the shelter and is just the the entire interaction between her and this club-owning Italian? French? Continental. Mediterranean, perhaps. Foreign man. Exotic. Exotic. Dickhead club owner in a convertible, their interaction is just beautiful. Yeah? You don't remember it? It doesn't stick in my mind, but this is a clinical condition. <laughs> um, there, Seema is smoking outside the shelter. He pulls up to his club mm. and there's a lot of portable tables blocking the entrance to his club mm. and he doesn't like it. And Seema is sitting there in all her glory Having a fag. I, I adore the way she smokes. She oh, smokes great. She smokes in a style that I can only call correct. I would agree. And he says, what is all this? And, and Seema you know, just like basically just ribs him and is amazing. And, and she says, oh, they're painting this shelter. And he says, you're not painting. And she's basically like, I don't paint. And he says, you are, you are like a boss. And she says... She says, why? And he says, you're sitting here smoking and doing nothing. You look like a boss. And she says, well, you got that right. Mm. Yes. And it is a lovely interaction. And, yes, as has been mentioned, they will fuck a lot next episode. Yes, yes. The very last scene is Carrie and Seema walking past the line into his club, both looking fabulous again. A three-day fuck binge will Mm -hmm. be one of many thrilling incidents discussed Perhaps a little too much by me until Rock says, can I get a word in? (laughs) (laughs) And we ourselves will celebrate a metaphorical fuck binge of remote podcast recording. Oh, my goodness, our finale. 
<gasps> approaches. LaFan is on the horizon. Will they be back for a second season? Who knows? I don't know. We could get shitty with each other again. I could get, you know, miffy with you for some fucking reason. Oh, you know, I do that, don't, don't I? Is a decision I make routinely <laughs> for whatever fucking reason. I don't know. You're a good sort, Rock. Oh, so are you, Rambo. Yeah, I don't know about. Well, I'm I'm a tragedy. <laughs> Very much so. I'm I'm a bit like Steve. You know? Um, no, no way. You like Steve? <laughs> no. What 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 is what do you think relates you to Steve? Oh, I want you to like, follow this thought. I'm wounded and beautiful. Yes, then yes, you are like Steve. And people don't see the exquisite beauty of my soul. I absolutely. So you are then in, very much. I will call you Steve from now on. Also, I've been dumped a lot. Mm, Say, so I think you know. In many of the ways you have described, I too am Steve. Are we all Steve? Is Steve every man? Perhaps. Rock, are there things you are itching to declare? Next week it is my youngest nibbling's bat mitzvah. Oh, excellent fun. Yes, there's a lot of activity going on in the next week. Is she good with a crowd or not? She is good with a crowd. Excellent. She will be fine. She 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 will do the the bat mitzvah. Stand up solid five, that is, I believe, a requirement of Judaism? Well, it's a requirement for boys to have a bar mitzvah. It's not. No, but being funny at one's bar mitzvah. Oh, being bar, funny, bat, yes. Or they mitzvah yes. is like, you know, probably in the Torah as an instruction. Well, I mean, I think they only let the funny Jews live, so we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. We've gone to some um, some dark places, murky, murky areas mm. in this review of what is probably the least even and perhaps most upsetting slash boring episode. I am looking very much forward to your meticulous verbal reenactment of the very several frocks worn in the finale. Oh, I'm very excited to talk about the final frock. I am also looking forward to resuming my now three years of life lived primarily in bed. Mm. I am much like Brian Wilson and also like Steve. Regrettably, I'm not much like Rock. We can but aspire. She is to human civility (laughs) as and just like that. As to fashion, she is unattainable. Definitely. All right, love. (laughs) The podcast is over. Socks with sandals. Always. Sometimes I feel like throwing my hands up in the air. I know I can count on you. Sometimes.